Hello from Austin. Welcome to episode 196 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Tuesday night, March 9th, 2021. I'm Bobby Chesney. Is it possible we are even more tired than we were last week? I, I'm Steve Vladek, and uh, we are not alone. We're not alone. Who are you? Hello there. <laughs> Steve, who is this interloper? Uh, this interloper is the winner of the Texas Law Fellowships auction um, for guest hosting our podcast because he just loves us so much that he oh, decided yeah. to 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 help uh, uh, donate some money to a good cause so he could spend an hour you know dragging us all across our own podcast. So well, uh, mostly you because you yeah, know, mostly we're me. Doing our together. But, <laughs> uh, so everybody, this is uh, Jacob Bishop. Uh, member of the University of Texas School of Law class of 2021, uh, also known as Jake. Um, hello, Jake. Hi there. So, Jake, you were born, and then what happened? Uh, no, okay. So, I was born, and I, then my back immediately started hurting. Mm. And then, no. So, Texas native, born and raised Dallas. Uh, you know, did the school thing for a bit, and then I because I make I was a nerd theater kid never played sports in my life didn't have an athletic bone in my body i thought and then i thought you know what sounds like a good idea jumping out of airplanes for the army that just <laughs> sounds fantastic jumping out of airplanes and kicking indoors so my 136 pound ass just enlisted in the army <laughs> yeah i'm 5'10 and i was 136 pounds you, you think about that nice and then I spent uh, five years as an instrument of national security law, I suppose you could call it. <laughs> yeah, and uh, the thing that makes me different than a lot of the other military people you see in law school, especially the combat arms guys, is I was enlisted, right? Just the way it works, a lot of the guys that you see that come through here... Uh, they're, they're officers, right? They were, you know, infantry officers and captains and things like that. And the reason that's important is because that means they were in Afghanistan in 2013, 2014, 2015, so on and so forth. Not that it wasn't dangerous then, because it definitely was. But the shift that happened in the way that operations were conducted with the U.S. Army and the Afghans went from, as I'm sure you all know, advise and assume to advise and assist, mm -hmm. Right. And it happened literally with the dudes that replaced us in 2012 uh, when the 101st Airborne uh, ripped out and on us in Afghanistan. So I am probably the last of the breed that was in the advise and assume portion of the war that's coming through law school. It's got to give you a particular perspective watching the back and forth. Uh, let me just ask, you know, how do you feel about the way we're negotiating currently? Who's at the table and what they're trying to do? What ought to, what should we do here, Jake? Honestly, look, I'm I'm of the opinion that a lot of the people that we were I was fighting uh, were normal people that were having to do it because the insurgents would come in and cut down their fields and then say, hey, you're starving now. Come fight for us and we'll pay you. And unfortunately, because of the way that this kind of warfare is, not that I'm an expert on it, unless we want to be fighting this for the next 50 years, which you don't have the attention span for, there's going to have to be a peace deal, you know, and squeezing the Taliban out uh, politically is probably going to be more effective than what we've done militarily. 
Well, let me ask you this. So when you were downrange, uh, obviously you had your ROE and you had your encounters with uh, op law, operational law. Um, Did you in the field already sense like, hey, this stuff's interesting. There are interesting legal elements to this. Is that why you came to law school or was it no, no, no. I want to, you know, I want to do property law. It's the rule against perpetuities for me. Uh, I, I went to law school because I decided I want to do something hard for once. So, no. Uh, the reason I went to law school is because I, I had a business undergrad. I forgot out of the army. Got exposed to business law like a lot of people do. I was like, oh, this is fun. I could do this. And I got here and I was like, oh, yeah, this is fun. And just all the stuff that I, I did in the army and my natural inclination, kicking indoors and jumping out of airplanes. You know what sounds like fun? Litigation. That sounds like fun. There you go. But you're not wrong when you're talking about the things that I saw where they're being interesting. I remember the first day of orientation, it was you and uh, another professor, the one who specializes in cyber warfare. Just His name just fell out of my head. You're talking about like, uh, was it Matt, when Matt Tate was still here? Or, yes, yes, or yes, Derek yes. Jinks maybe? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I believe it was, uh, I think it was the first one. And you, y'all were talking about, oh yeah, and then national security law and cyber warfare things. And I thought, oh yes, that, that sounds like the kind of law that I want to get into. And then I took Professor Vladek's seminar and changed my mind. <laughs> Steve? <laughs> what, did what did I do? What did you do to Jake? He challenged me to a fist fight in the first day of class and called me an asshole. And that's when I knew I liked him. <laughs> I don't think you wrote that in your evaluations because as a Sophie Dean, I'm pretty sure I would have noticed that. <laughs> it was a playful challenge to a fist fight. These are things your Sophie Dean does not want to know. <laughs> I, I think I think at the moment it was entirely appropriate. I I, I oh, actually think it helped it helped set the tenor of the seminar that we were going for. Yeah, it was it was the first day, and that's I was like, all right, I like this guy. This guy's was this military justice? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the seminar in which, on my 40th birthday, my sister sent a a, a, sing, a singing oh, a singing I telegram. Karen, was your Karen wife told me, and so I came. Remember, I came and saw that. I've no, never, no, no, Jake. Karen, Karen only facilitated it. It was, okay. it was it was not her. It was not her idea. It was, shall we say, the the, the worst moment of my the life. Least capable singing telegram yeah. performers one could possibly <laughs> imagine. They hired this rando, this random lady off of Craigslist to come in and do like a birthday singing thing. And like, oh, Professor Vladek, Stephen Lee likes Hamilton. We'll have her do that. And this lady had never seen Hamilton. <laughs> so she, <laughs> really good, and she does this weird sing-songy thing. And I'm just like, listen, I haven't seen Hamilton either, but I did enough musical theater. No, this lady has no idea what she's doing. It had The whole thing had this like Shit's Creek kind of vibe to it. <laughs> it cringy, like, I can't believe this is happening. But it was gold for the rest of us, Steve. Yeah. Watching you trying to sit there with good humor as mm-hmm. this person, like, kind of really did kind of ad lib through this whole song. I'm like, what? You didn't even, like, learn a song of some sort? That You yeah. had one job. You had, had one, one, <laughs> you had one job to do. Oh, in a Queen Elizabeth mask, by yeah. the way. That's important to note. This lady was wearing a rubber Queen Elizabeth mask, like you see, like dead presidents type of thing. One of those. Well, maybe and, maybe she's the one that said wildly inappropriate things about uh, the next royal baby. Hmm? Maybe, uh, yeah. We'll get yeah. back to that. But I, I just want to say, I think I think it might surprise some folks who listen to this podcast on a regular basis to know just how uncomfortable I was during that whole situation. It's okay. Um, I'm able to see every year on your birthday because I have the pictures. The and 
putting them on Twitter and tagging Beat that out tonight, man. Every year, roundabout whenever it was. I'll vouch for it. I, Steve, I've seen you in all kinds of difficult uh, intellectual engagement type situations. Uh, I've never seen anybody look quite as uncomfortable as you did about after about five or ten minutes had gone by and it was still going on. Yeah. I'm not even that sure it took me five or ten minutes. <laughs> I also I, mean, I also think it's a difference between like like it's not that I mind being the center of attention. I mean, hello, we have a podcast. Um, it's that I'm not exactly into like being a spectacle. And, mm. and no one in the class of about fifteen people, none of us knew what the hell was going on. Like including we me, was so it, was, it was it was fun for the whole family. But we were like, what is this lady? doing what is she what is this it was a spectacle of awkwardness by the way right. possible show title Ooh, uh, spectacle of i'm writing that one down spectacle, yep yep there it is spectacle oh, it's like a confederacy of dunces but but worse um, um should we maybe. actually do like what the so so we're we're, we're 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 like we're just eating up time that jacob's going to edit out of the lawfare not you jacob that jacob schultz is going to edit out of the lawfare exactly. podcast version of it's this so right funny. we talked about that last time and then like lo and behold uh they did choose that episode to do a lawfare podcast i'm sure it was like snip from like from 30 seconds in to like 22 minutes <laughs> well, i mean i like I said in our pre-thing i'm a huge nerd i play like dungeons and dragons and stuff like that and i've been running a game i've been playing it since like the 90s right and i've been doing the the zoom discord thing for about six years playing an online game running it because i got friends on florida and california and all that other you know fun stuff and the first like 20 or 30 minutes even after five or six years we just spend you know screwing around and talking about whatever it's like hey we should probably play our game yeah, the whole the, the game is a means to an end, and if you're uh-huh. going around with your friends, uh-huh. if you're, if you're, if God forbid you're enjoying this thing we're yeah. doing right now, yeah. that's that's the real thing. That's that's the real good thing. Now I'm just saying, I, I'm just telling you guys now. I might fall asleep in the middle of this, so you know, just all right. right. I do better, like I got Jake here. We'll keep going. Oh yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I can talk to a fence post. It's fine. We should we should acknowledge because not everybody's going to realize this. Uh, there's a reason you're so tired, Steve. Uh, are your arms tired? <laughs> I just flew in from Milwaukee, and boy, are my arms tired. Thank you, thank you very much. Uh, why are you so tired, man? Where, where have you Where have you been today? Where in the world is Steve? Uh, Steve Vladek was at the Court of Appeals for the Armed. Steve Vladek was getting his rear end handed to him by the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces this morning in Washington D.C. and then flew home. But the larger problem is that I do not sleep very well the night before oral arguments. I just, I just, I it, it's a thing. Um, which really isn't a problem for the argument itself because adrenaline really does carry you through. But then you get to the point, which for me was when I got to Charlotte on my way home, where your body's like, okay, no more need for adrenaline. Bye. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the old Charlotte airport. Did you sit in those, uh, those, uh, the rocking chairs, chairs, the rocking chairs. I, lo- I love the rocking chairs. The rocking chairs were, were sufficiently crowded that I did not feel appropriately socially distanced. Yeah. It's, it's hard to get in there. Um, did you, how did you feel about the, the public health aspects of travel today? Um, you know, I, I felt better about it today cause I was on two planes that were three and three and that were pretty empty. Um, the flight yesterday up to DC was the nonstop United flight. That's an Embraer. That's a two, two. And, you know, it was pretty full. Um, So I was sitting right next to someone, you know, I think I would have felt much more conflicted and sort of stressed out about that part if I wasn't fully vaccinated. Yeah. yeah, Um, But having both shots, I think has, has, you know, made me a little, not, not blase about it, but just sort of, you know, more willing to indulge the risk. 
You feel safe. Yeah. Er. Safer. 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 Uh, yeah. I think there's an element of Patista, the PTSD, yep. uh, you lay people, uh, about this whole thing that's just never going to go away. You know? Yep, it's, that's right. You know, I'm um, optimistic. I think we're going to be. I think we're going to be in great shape at least by midsummer. I think maybe even early summer if we get lucky. Um, I mean, oh, I don't kidding. mean the vaccines. I mean, we're all going to be. You oh, know, you're just gonna, we're just going to continue on even after we get no, in the. No, 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 no. What's going to happen is no. you know, people. People you don't know, even people that are extroverts, right? You see somebody you don't know get within about eight feet of you, and it's going to trigger a fight or flight response, right? Because that's what happens. I mean, I definitely not a psychologist. I'm, I'm a big old germaphobe. If people continue the habit of wearing masks when they're not feeling well, nothing could make me happier. I, I'm all for people to I, still masking up. I do hope that does stick. Oh, sorry, we're we're talking about uh, Professor Vladek's god. Oh yeah, him. Any please. No, that's right. We're, we're, we'll come back later in the show, I think, to the actual yeah. substance of the argument in Begani, which I think Jake had the, the misfortune of listening to. Um, and I had the misfortune. I, I had the even greater misfortune of participating in. Um, <laughs> I wanted but, to but, give you a hug after your, your uh, after, you know, that nonsense. This is, this is you know, I, this is my this is my third argument out of four that I've walked out of feeling like I needed a shower. I mean, the, <laughs> you know, the. LF, LF. I mean, the Hernandez argument in SCOTUS, I walked out like, what the hell was that? The oh, um, the Briggs argument in SCOTUS, I was like, wow, that, 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 that just wasn't good. Um, I felt better about the Academy argument in the Texas Supreme Court, but we'll see if that turns out to hold up. And then there was today. So, Well, maybe it's um, like exams where like just because you feel like you got your butt handed to you on exam – it's graded on a curve, you know. You might have done did, relatively well. Didn't work in Hernandez or Briggs, so yeah, we'll see. It's your turn, Steve. It's your turn. The test doesn't yell back at you about why are you focusing on the pay, you know, system so much. I mean, the test doesn't do that. The test wouldn't it be great if it did. Yeah, I mean, it would. No, no. Yeah. The, I mean, we'll get we'll get to this, but like, I mean, basically, like, oh, so you're okay with a world in which Congress can say anyone is part of the military and then perpetually so to the UCMJ, and the cast like, yeah. Sure. So good times. Hey, maybe maybe they listen to this podcast and you'll get your chance to uh, reassert uh, a few key points. And oh, yeah, I'm, sure, I'm, I'm sure that I'm sure that the five calf judges are religious listeners to this podcast. You never know. And hey, maybe the clerks. Uh, well, well let me get to the run of show. Let's lay down uh, turning to the substance. Yeah, it only got? took us 15 minutes to get that might be a new record for us, by the way. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Um, so. So uh, for Lawfare Podcast purposes, here's the snip point. Snip. So on today's show, we've got some great topics. And uh, as we said in the warm-up before the show, um, it's refreshingly national security law core topics for the most part, instead of uh, over recent years, some of the other topics we've had. And what are they in particular? First, we have a batch of counterterrorism and AUMF stuff. We've got... Uh, the new uh, directive attributed to Jake Sullivan, the White House policy directive uh, variously characterized as introducing new limits or reinstating old limits on uh, the use of lethal force for counterterrorism purposes outside areas of active hostilities. Ladies and gentlemen, get out your PPGs. We're going back to PPG land and need to get familiar with what that was and where the conversation was in the past. Secondly, we've got uh, Iran's Counter-Strike on the Al-Assad airbase and the, the question of what might happen next and legally speaking, how might we think about that? That's all speculative, of course. Uh, and then on top of that, it, but relevant to it, we have AUMF reform in the air. 
There's the Kane Young bill and others uh, bill to repeal the 1991, hello college, and 2002 Iraq AUMFs. And then the separate discussion that's lurking in the background of that about the White House's parent interest, easy to say, hard to do, uh, 2001 AUMF reform. So that's all under the counterterrorism and AUMF headings. Then you've got, a, there's a little bit of cybersecurity, US, Russia stuff going on because, well, solar winds was very upsetting and we must do something. And there, ha- there was an interesting report, which has been contested by the White House, but a New York Times report uh, saying that there will be, quote, series of covert counterstrikes on Russian networks, close quote. Uh, good, good to be reading about that ex ante, huh? Um, in response to solar winds, but also in the same article talking about a possible upcoming executive order uh, to, quote, accelerate the hardening of federal government networks. And so we'll talk a little bit about that. But all that's really just warm up to get to what we were talking about just a moment. Steve's excellent adventure in Washington today. I think he's kind. Of, I think he's kind of wishing he just zoomed it in and didn't have to travel all that way for for that particular experience. So we'll talk about Bagani, and uh, all of that is prelude, of course, to talking about coming to America. Eddie Murphy coming to America. I mean, yeah, you have to accent it, right? Right. Uh, coming to America, not coming to America. That's really good. I'm, I'm good or terrible. So, so I actually, I'm going to try to convince you. a short review of where your review is going to go? I, I just, I, I actually, I mean, listen, Spectacle of Awkwardness is a good episode title, but we might have a hard time topping good and terrible because, you know. <laughs> this podcast is good. Good and terrible. No, no, no. Coming to America was good. Good and terrible. Uh, I'll, I'll confess now. Jake, you saw it, right? Yes, yes, I've seen it. Yeah. All right, so I have not finished, but I'm ready nonetheless. Yeah, yeah. Uh, God, do we want to do we do the frivolity first, or do we? Uh, save we got to save it. That's we do frivolity last. That's what I thought. That's the dessert. So, friends, uh, let's jump in with the counterterrorism and AUMF stuff. Uh, we are told uh, it's been widely reported, and I believe confirmed that the White House did, in fact, on January 20th, uh, through the National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. Uh, at least partially reinstate some of the rules associated with the uh, ye old PPG, the Presidential Policy Guidance, which was the playbook for how the Obama administration had thought about, in particular, the use of lethal force, kill capture operations generally outside of, quote, areas of active hostilities, which is not, which is more policy category than a legal category. If you go back far enough on the show, I'm sure we've talked about it at length before. Uh, dirty secret of the show. None, Steve and I don't remember anything about what we may have covered in the early days or even the recent days. But anyways. I, I know that there were early episodes. There were. I think we did deep dives and we kind of scrounged. Deep dives. I, deep I, I, dives. I think that there's so much uh, mental trauma from the last however many millennia it's been of Donny J's administration that we've all got retrograde amnesia to a degree. It was like we there was before and there's after. There's yeah. no question about that. Um so so I think critical context for this is to appreciate that um it has been the policy of, of presidents of both parties throughout the post 9-11 period, all all these God, decades now, decades, um, that it's a state of armed conflict mm-hmm. with Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and associated forces. And then there's been an evolution over time of 
what counts as associated forces. But the claim has been that there is an armed conflict. The claim has been, as far as the U.S. is concerned, that there's no inherent geographical limitation to that as a matter of law, though the U.N. charter as a matter of law does absolutely constrain where you can use force and insert here complications and caveats associated with uh, quiet consent of the territorial state and the unwilling, unable test. But having said that, the baseline claim is that it's a state of armed conflict, that there are members of an organized armed group or multiple organized armed groups that for whom the use of force in theory could be a first resort, not a last resort. Under human rights law, it'd be a last resort. Under the law of armed conflict model, could be a first resort. And that at least since the Obama administration, under the Obama administration, the idea was let's, as a matter of policy, layer in policy on top of that, much in the way that even in a conceded war zone, you would layer in policy constraints through the ROE, the rules of engagement. Let's do that writ large for the government such that there will be further constraints and limitations, especially process requirements, insofar as lethal force might be used outside of a designated area of active hostilities. Note here the the policy focus, not the legal focus. It's not a claim about where there's an armed conflict because the underlying model is the conflict spills over everywhere the Al-Qaeda member or fill in the blank might be, but rather a policy constraint where we policy-wise choose to designate areas usually formulated as Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria. Those are the active hostility zones and all these other places where we do with some considerable frequency in some cases like Yemen and Somalia, you might use lethal force, but we're going to treat that as as a matter of policy, something else, special rules apply. What are those rules? There are elements such as uh, um, requirements that there be an imminent threat to life, though you have to always understand that imminent when the US government's using it is not imminent in the sense that it's yeah, about to actually happen. Yeah. It's not it's not the imminent you think. It's it's the imminent in the sense of uh last clear window of opportunity to act when you know there's an ongoing threat and the window opens why it's imminent even if you don't know there's a particular attack coming. That's one way to look at it. Um obviously a lot of controversy attends that. Um so an imminence test, um various other complications. Um it turns out over time we've learned Lots and lots of nuance about particular fact patterns and scenarios, um, risk of lo- risk of harm to to uh, innocent bystanders, so collateral damage risk. In that case, in theory, you're not supposed to shoot. Um, crowded urban areas versus open road areas, presence of other civilians. All these these factors go into the playbook, right? Uh, under Trump, we know at least a few elements of this. They're not definitely not the whole thing, but some elements of this were pulled back. Um, notably for present purposes, I I think what we know was pulled back was some elements of obliging DOD and perhaps CIA as well, though that's less clear, to come back to the White House for a presidential determination or an interagency mediated legal and policy review of the strike decision. This is all part of Trump's larger push to devolve authority in, in a variety of areas out to the field. And as has been often observed, the one way to look at that is an effort to try to make things quicker and more efficient, avoid you know White House micromanagement. Another way to look at it is making sure that you're in a position to critique what then happens with that authority. I think that's well, a very generous yeah. uh, description of it, but I'll, yeah, I'll wait. So Jake, yeah, having been downrange, Jake, um, 
Does, did any, I forget when you said you were in Afghanistan. Uh, I was in Afghanistan in 2009, 2010, and then I was in Afghanistan again in uh, 2012. Okay, so pre-presidential policy guidance for PPG. So you operated yeah. under the, the prior framework. Um, do you, is there anything you can say or want to say about what your general understanding of the, uh, the operational environment was, legally speaking? Oh, yeah, yeah. So the what I re- recall specifically in 2012, uh, it, let's go with the on-the-ground on the assets, go with artillery, right? Guidance was you couldn't use artillery on a target that was in fi- within 50 meters of a civilian building or civilian assets or whatnot. And this whole thing to where the, the fire control dudes had to look at the thing on the, the map and then match it up to a satellite photo and then measure while the gun bunnies, the dudes on the artillery line, are getting the gun lined up. And then for air assets, that was considered more discretionary for the pilot, right? In that the pilots were given, it it was put on them as to whether or not they were going to engage targets or not. And there's a distinct, uh, there's an incident I recall in which this indirect fire team, uh, got caught by some Kiowa little scout helicopters that we had on station. And these dudes tried to hide the uh, insurgents tried to hide in a crowd and the Kiowas waited until they were just a little bit past them and then just lit them up. Right. They hit them with not, I'm not going to go into details for the purposes of polite conversation, but they engaged very, very close to the crowds. Right. Uh, And then as I, you heard me talking about earlier, Right when we left was when there was switchover between advise and assume and advise and assist happened, and a lot more of that uh, centralization of authority. The dues that we ripped out with us in October of that year, the 101st, it went from having battalion authorization to use fires to you had to get a general officer at Bagram Air Base, uh, where we were at, to authorize strikes. It was like that because we ticked over into the past the calendar date. And of course that started ramping up in uh, all specifically drone strikes where it was presidential authorization. And it seems like from the Trump administration, they were trying to push that authorization back down to commanders, right? In terms of liability, the commander on the ground was ultimately liable for any assets that they controlled, right? So if you shoot artillery, mortars, anything like that, and it, you know, takes out a, a schoolhouse or something, kills a bunch of kids, that dude's going to jail for a long time. It was different with the pilots. And I never worked with drone pilots, so I can't speak to that. But I do know that our commander would basically give clearance to the guys to engage when they felt necessary. And that was it. So there was a clear distinction between these manned assets that were in the air and ground assets that we had access to. But even then, when we switched out, all of it got kicked up. You know, all of it got kicked up to higher. Well, it's interesting to think about. So these policy overlays, which are a big part of what you're describing, uh, for, for someone downrange, the, the reality is whether it's coming from policy preference of somebody higher up or which may not be the White House, maybe the commander. So think about McChrystal in Afghanistan, whether it's coming from policy preference or it's coming from some set of lawyers determining that these are the rules. At the end of the day, you have your rules of engagement. You have your procedures you've got to follow. 
Um, and it's going to shift over time. And, and a lot of that's exactly as it should be because the changing nature of the battle and the, and the mission are going to dictate some of that change. And you have to express that through the ROE. The interesting question now is, um, well, a couple of things. One, uh, this is in some sense kind of a placeholder, right? So Jake Sullivan's in there. The Biden administration's in there. They, they come from the model where they had thought long and hard and had years of experience under this model. They wanted to pull it back to where there was more control for this new administration, especially on things that could have mega spillover effects. Makes a lot of sense that at least temporarily bring it back. They've made clear this is part of a longer review. There's an ongoing legal and policy review. There's no telling where that might go. And it'll be bound up in the topic we're going to reach in a second here, which is AUMF reform. Although I'll tell you, I'm very skeptical that the details of how to modulate the use of force are really going to end up finding expression in some new revised reformed AUMF. It's going to have to be done through White House policy. We just don't know which way they're going to go on this. But in the meantime, whereas Bush, Obama, Trump, in all those settings, uh, for the most part, we have a pretty active and predictably continuing set of armed engagements. You know, the world has changed a bunch. There's there's reason to think that in, in a growing number of areas, we may just not remain downrange committed enough in terms of who we have there and what equipment we have there to continue on in the way that we have been over the past two decades. Used to be 10 years ago, Steve, you and I, in the early days when we used to debate and talk <laughs> about all this. The, uh, the, the Bobby Steve Tongue Roadshow. Yeah, Tongue Yen. Hey, Tongue, if you ever listen, uh, we need to have you on. It's been way too long. Uh, little known fact, This here's a little gem for anyone who enjoys sort of the stuff Steve and I do. Uh, Steve, Tongue, and I all used to have, before there was lawfare, there was national security advisors, True. a proto-lawfare type website. It was not so great, but we tried. No. That was not good. My bad. <laughs> um, anyways, I guess where I'm getting going with this is uh, there's a larger set of strategic questions the country's grappling with about where we are going to be at all on a sustained basis. I don't think we're about to pull back from everywhere. But whereas 10 years ago, conversations about pulling back in, in many senses seemed fanciful, even, even, as, even as the Obama administration initially was pulling out of Iraq, still seemed like that was the exception to the larger rule. Um, here, you know, you just don't know these days. And so it could be that the way it turns out, maybe that the answer to how does the global war on terror end, well, never formally ends with a loud, clear statement as such, because which politician or political figure would ever want to own those words when something might blow up the very next day? But what might happen instead is a practical erosion of the level of activity that takes place location or theater by theater, bit by bit, and half of it's off the radar screen anyways. And so you just can't even measure it. So sort of a, it ends with the whimper more than yeah. a bang type theory. Exactly what I was thinking. And like when you guys were talking about the 10 years ago, that was when I was there. Right. And I, I see what you mean. Like you're at these big bases and you're like, man, how are they ever going to move all this out of here? And even then 2009, 2012, all of us, like low level grunts on the ground, we all knew there's never going to be a point where we can look around and say, okay, we're done. Let's go. Like when Iraq fell apart, I wasn't in Iraq, but I'd heard plenty of stories from the guys in my unit that had been, cause it'd been the pro uh, previous deployment. There's a lot of the same things that were repeated in Afghanistan in terms of the local nationals and all that. 
uh, the only people who were surprised that Iraq collapsed as fast as it did to ISIS were people who hadn't been there and hadn't been on the ground. All of us who, like anybody who had been a ground pounder or anything like that, even those of us that had been in Iraq, are like, yeah, that sounds about right. And I, the people who, it seems like policy is just now catching up to the reality of it that generations of guys and girls and uh, non-binary, non-binary people like me have seen over the last 20 years that this is never going to end air quotes we're just gonna stop we're gonna we're going to create some uh, what we thought was we were going to create some end point some artificial goalpost of you know free elections or what have you and when i was there it was this ridiculous thing called the hide system h-i-i-d-e which was if you don't know about it, it was biometrics basically the idea that if we get everybody in afghanistan into this biometrics database that the, the Afghan cops would be able to like ninja repel in anytime an IED bomber did stuff. And it was completely ridiculous because all of it were basically it was, you got their fingerprints and all that. And then you made them fill out a questionnaire. So it was all based on them telling the truth. And we were being judged by how many hides did you get today? How many dudes did you put in the biometrics? And, you know, and before that in 2009, it was how many key leader engagements did you go on? How many, this, that, the other thing we always thought it was going to be some, Thing like that because we didn't know how to measure success, right? And all, all the dudes on the ground could see it. And the military brass was in the unfortunate position of trying to find a clear mission objective in something that was nowhere near what they were trained to do. So I, I think you're 100% right. It's not going to be a whimper. Or it's going to be a whimper, not a bang. We're going to slowly draw back, say, yes, the Afghan army is ready to assume blah, 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 blah. And going back to your earlier comment, this is why I think the peace talks are very important because peace talks, assuming the insurgents stick to the deal and bringing them to the table as awful as they are, prevents them from decapitating the government and rolling right over these uh, host, these local national uh, military units like they did in Iraq. I think that is going to be the thing where we start pulling back, right? And then it'll, you know, from my armchair uh, transnational politics view, it's going to be more like it was in the 90s where we're sending in small units, places like Africa and yada, 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 train the locals, so on and so forth. Maybe. Who knows? By, by with, and through, right? Steve, uh, anything to add on this? It, it segues pretty nicely to the. Just quick note on how Iran did launch missiles at the Al-Assad Air Base in response to the strike we carried out in Syria on the border and, and the larger conversation that set out that we talked about last week on the show about the Biden administration's legal framework for that, an Article 2 framework, which we, we talked about a little bit. Let, let's say all this other stuff does wind up. As, as you and I have noted endlessly, uh, I write about this in my paper, Post-War, from many years ago, but oh so still relevant today. No one should think that the demise of all the areas of active hostilities means the United States doesn't use lethal force on particular occasions. Um, is that Are we heading basically back to that version, that post-war environment in general? I mean, maybe. I mean, you know, a, a lot of folks reacted very strongly last week when 
Um, I think it was Jen Psaki said something to the effect of, you know, we are very interested in the topic of AUMF reform. Um, and I sort of, I rolled my eyes. <laughs> um, you never roll your eyes, Steve. What? I know, right? Something new and different for me. Um, n- not because I'm not, I was not rolling my eyes at the expression of interest, right? I was rolling my eyes at the reaction of, you know, the entire sort of national security Twitterati. Um, that this was some like you know definitive inflection point. It's and I was going like, to change. It's all different now, right? And I was like, but no, but but not just Bobby with regard to the on the ground consequences. Just like the notion that Biden saying he supports AUMF reform means that there will be AUMF reform. It's like where have I seen this movie? Who um, dis, bro? You were literally in the room. Like that's you. I've got a picture of you next to the other. Like, it's just like he shows up with a mustache on. No, I would totally never die. It's like, no, no, you're not. You're the I mean, but, but the mustache, instead of the mustache being on Biden, the mustache is going to be on the Obama AUMF, right? <laughs> I mean, the, I mean, you know, folks may not remember, but like Obama introduced like a draft AUMF reform bill in what, 2015? Um, and we all hated it, but it was at least something. Um, there was, you know, back then it seemed like, well, I don't know, maybe, maybe some deal could be reached. It wasn't. Um, there were, as we talked about in other settings before there's a podcast, I'm sure many a conference. Before there was a podcast. The, the, there was a time before this podcast? Thank God. We used, um, we used and smoke signals and we, we lied to each other by mail. We had to sit next to each other at conferences, on panels, on stage, talking about the various things that were poison pills to various audiences in those deals. Well, let's talk about AUMF reform. So there's... there's uh, Tim Kaine's got, you know, he's been a champion of various reform proposals over time. After the Iran strike that we just talked about, the United States, when we conducted on Iranian proxies at the border in Syria, there was a bill from Kaine and Young, I think was the other co-sponsor of the original bill. And and in many ways, it was a breath of fresh air because instead of insisting on any bill trying to solve all the problems, it just focused on repeal of the 91 and 02 Iraq AUMFs, making the claim that these are not doing any independent legal work now. So you can't possibly argue that there's a detriment to operational efficacy or otherwise by repealing them. But they do lie about like like loaded weapons. Uh, They didn't say this in the whereas clauses, but it was the subtext of it all. It's still dangerous because as we saw at various moments during the Trump administration, People get concerned that the existence, especially of the O2 AMF, might be exploited for uh, implausible, but nonetheless available if you've got enough nerve to assert them type of arguments that are really all about using force against Iran. And so there's a clean repeal for the 91 and O2 AUMFs on the table. Let's talk about that first. I have no problem with the repeal of those. They do no current legal work. And if there needs to be a legal foundation beyond what Article 2 already gives, which is quite ample, in fact, uh, vis-a-vis any other entity, whether it's run or otherwise, that that either needs to be something that Article 2 covers because it is a national self-defense scenario or it needs to go to Congress. Um, any any objections to the Kane bill? Yes. I mean, so not not <laughs> not, wanna- not in- everybody. That's it. Yes, we're done. <laughs> I mean, not not insofar as it repeals the ninety one and 02 AUMFs, okay. but like I just right no, but like I just I 
as folks, I mean, when, when Kane introduced his draft AUMF reform bill in what, 2018, was that cor- that was a uh, uh, Corker Kane? Remember that one? Corker Kane, yeah. Um, right. Like that was actually going to make things a lot worse. So I want to, you know, I'm not, I'm not yet sold that like Kane is where that I'm not sold that like Senator Kane is the person we want leading the charge on, on, on the policy reform conversation. So I got no problem with, with Tim Kane, but let me just ask this just in principle, no matter who's sponsoring it, does, is there any reason not to just go ahead and terminate the, the 2002 Iraq in 1991 no. Persian Gulf? no. AMS. No, <laughs> no. Uh, what about what about the next question? This is a political question. I, I get it, but um, is it smart to proceed with a clean uh, repeal of those as a standalone bill rather than trying to use the desire to repeal them as a way to force people to also engage on the O one AMF? Personally, I think that it's way better to just. I think we've seen that like you'll never get anything if you do that. So just go ahead and repeal ninety one O two, and then deal with O one separately. If and when you're ready to do that, yeah, I mean it's a start. I just, I mean, meaningful AUMF reform is not just about cleaning up what's on the books. It's also about setting a precedent. I mean, this is this is the point that's getting lost in this conversation. Is it's not just about Congress atoning for its prior sins. It's about Congress actually t- clawing back some of its power, you know, to sort of define the scope of of the authorizations and the authorities going forward. And so, like, yeah, a bill that repeals the 9102 AUMFs, whippity-doo, um, <laughs> right? But, like, a, you know, if we're, if we're going to do AUMF reform without touching on the 2001 AUMF, what are we doing here? All right, so let's turn to that because now the Biden administration has at least let it be known that they're thinking about this, that it's no they, they, I mean, They're thinking about lots of stuff. They're thinking about Supreme Court reform. They're thinking about, you know, maybe some judges. They haven't nominated a single one yet. Oh, by the way. So on a, on O one AUMF reform, um, the, we we've seen past bills. The most recent Kane bill was very, it was very different from I think from Corker Kane. It's certainly different from the Obama administration proposal that floated around back then that you mentioned a little while ago. Um, I think what I'm about to say gets at what what makes you not a fan of of Kane type proposals. If I recall correctly, last Congress's Kane bill was going to basically is going to replace an update in a way that kind of locks in what currently is the prevailing interpretation of the one AMF. That is, it, w- it would expressly name beyond Al Qaeda and the Taliban, it would name, I think, AQAP, maybe Al Shabaab, um, definitely Islamic State. And then it had the mechanism for including others as yet to be named or identified publicly associated forces, but it had a, a forcing mechanism for disclosure to Congress of in the public of who those groups are, and then a mechanism to fast track what could be a completely vetoable congressional attempt to do something if they see a name on that list that they don't like. So in other words, um, it would it would say, yeah, there could be other groups and Congress would at least have public debate about that, but couldn't overcome presidential resistance, most likely doing expansion. And then it didn't really say anything else other than I think uh, maybe it was a four-year sunset or something like that. It, is it the inclusion in that model of the the implicit or explicit recognition that there would be other associated forces that uh, bothers you, or is it that it didn't include something else? Like I'm trying to get at, what is it that that earlier Kane approach what was unsatisfying about that? 
I mean, the earlier can approach would have, I think, I mean, am I misremembering this? Wasn't Cork or Kane the bill that would have allowed the government to identify new, the president could identify new associated forces? Well, that's what I'm saying. Right? But, but I think Cork or Kane it affirmatively like, kind of put that in your face, whereas yeah. Kane in the last Congress, it was it was done much more deftly. It was the same effect, uh, practically speaking. Which is why I still have a but I still have real concerns about it. I mean, like if Congress is going to actually reclaim its role in the war powers, you know, gosh darn it, reclaim your role in the war powers. I mean, like, so what you know, should a reform give? Give us the, the Vladic reform bill. The, I mean, I've I have written. I've there's 15 years of paper or at least blog posts on this. Like I have. Give, give us the Cliff Notes version. The, yeah, the, the, cl- the, the Cliff Notes are sunset specific list of which groups were authorizing the use of force against. Um, transparency requirements with regard to the government believing that the statute authorizes it to use force against additional groups, um, right? I mean, just like, you know, those kinds of sort of predicates just at the threshold, um, you know, no sort of no implicit or secret determinations that a different group is covered by a statute, right? No uh, implicit associated forces. I mean, let's make this all abundantly clear and require Congress to revisit not just the list of groups, but also the scope of the authorization every three years. With with all of that wonderful list of things that I've... <laughs> <laughs> that wonderful list. That well, wonderful list I mostly understood and halfway agreed with. Um, here's the thing that you talked about earlier, is what this comes down to is beyond passing pieces of paper, Congress has to actually go to the executive branch and go, no, this is mine. You can't, I'm taking this back. And the reality of it is the way things are sitting right now, that's not going to happen. It's not right. AUMF reform, the, the bills from Kane and it, it's just not going to happen because that is going to invariably mean they're going to have to sue the white house. They're going to have to hold them to account because I don't have much faith that this administration, really any administration right now, after 20 years of having this power, is just going to quietly go, okay, here you go. No, they're going to try and find ways to keep doing some of these things because they want to keep their toys. But and- I mean, but, right. I mean, but this, I mean, this is why this is all sort of a fool's errand because, you know, it, the Biden administration can say we support AOMF reform, but until they actually expend political capital to whip votes for it, like. Yeah, I mean, you know what AOMF reform looks like? They stop doing it. They could do that. <laughs> they don't need to pass bills. The Biden admit they're the ones doing the stuff. If they really meant AUMF reform, cool. Stop doing the things. This, yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, go ahead. I, I, mean, I, 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 you know, they, you know, if they stop doing the things, what's to stop Tom, you know, President Tom Cotton from doing all the things when he, you know, is sworn in in twenty twenty five, right? I get it, but I'm saying that they're they're basically. Oh, saying I guess Tom Cotton will do all the things anyway, whether or not there's a statute on the books. Yeah, Somebody should write an article about post war legal frameworks and how Article Two could be used uh, under you know past practice. Yes, you know, that, that would be a good article. So would be an, so would an article about how you could still have some kind of meaningful detention framework after you repeal the AUMF. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. It's almost like we should plan for these things. To dis- It's almost like we should decide, like, what is it we need to do? And what would be a sound, reasonable balance of equities way of doing them? Um, you guys are right. There, this isn't going to happen. Uh, oh, 9102 repeal 
low hanging fruit. Sure, why not? I think that absolutely can happen. And so that if and only if it gets. So my my prediction, you heard it here first. Worth worth what you paid for it. Um, ninety one and 02 repeal will work if and only if it gets folded into the NDAA. Yeah, yeah, hundred yeah, percent. That's that's actually you could just use that as a general statement, like insert here, like <laughs> word, but see the NDAA observation. That's- I was actually I was having a conversation last week with a Hill staffer, um, who's. Uh, uh, unnamed, uh, or at least, uh, for this purpose, anonymous boss is very serious about pushing on a particular series of military justice reform proposals. Mm-hmm. And at one point I said, is the goal to actually do this as a standalone bill or as an NDAA, you know, provision? I said, well, we would love to do it as a standalone bill. Uh, but nobody but could ever happen. <laughs> These that days, the only way anything gets through that's related to anything like this is through the NDAA. That's right. All right. Well, we've kind of uh, beaten that one to death. Um, let's pivot over real quick to uh, a quick note I wanted to give on this fascinating New York Times story uh, about you know David Singer, Nicole Perlroth. Um, oh, I may be forgetting. It. There may have been a third author on that. So sorry. Um, but any, anyways, this story is is the latest on the wranglings in the administration over whether and how to do something specific that is publicly visible, that is identified by the administration as a part of the response to the solar winds uh, hacking fiasco where Russia's SVR it seems their their foreign intelligence service most likely suspect for uh, taking advantage of the solar winds sort of software supply chain to gain access to a huge number of private sector and government federal civilian agency computer networks and engaging in some pretty sweet espionage as a result you got to hand it to them they they did that, and that is shame on us for allowing it to happen. But it is set off this, to my mind, uh, almost incomprehensible set of arguments. Though I, I get, I get how it works about how this is intolerable, and there must be retaliation and punishment. As if we don't engage in cyber espionage using all sorts of capacities and ways. And there, there are interesting questions about whether you can draw a line around what the Russians did here and distinguish it in kind from anything that we would ever do. Pretty skeptical about this, but there are interesting academic discussions to be had. Erica Borghardt has a great uh, piece at Lawfare kind of making this point today, in fact. In any event, here comes the New York Times saying, uh, the administration has said, as I said earlier, there will be, quote, a series of covert counterstrikes on Russian networks. Now, what's <laughs> hilarious about this yeah, exactly. So, so many things that are funny here. So first of all, covert- we are loudly announcing that we are going to engage in a series of covert, unattributed strikes on Russia. Right? In the previous administration, I could absolutely believe that that had just leaked, and but I find it difficult to believe that that was not intentionally like, hey, Russia, by the by, uh, we're mad at you. Have you guys have you guys seen the new Sherlock Holmes movies, the Robert Downey Jr. ones? Yeah, yeah. It's been so a while, the, but yeah. There's a line in the second one, Game of Shadows, where he says, "It's so it's so overt, it's covert." <laughs> that's pretty wise. So that's yeah. yeah. This could be like, is this like, uh, uh, or, you know, retaliation on the cheap? We're not actually going to do anything. We're just going to insist that we're going to. And if anything well, should happen to go wrong, then you might wonder. Maybe. We- but this is the best part because, like, when the Russians don't actually find anything, they'll be like, "Wait, what have we missed?" Man, yeah. so or they're going to start looking. Every little thing is going to be attributed to U.S. Yeah. retaliation, right? Well, here's here's the fun part. The the White House came back very soon thereafter, saying like, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa! 
Absolutely not. We didn't. Whoever spoke to you off the record, or whoever spoke to you anonymously, um, someone something got garbled here. We did not say, or someone did not mean to signal this. And so, if it is meant to be a signal, then the signal gets pulled back, and you're just left with sort of this sense of like, is, is this just somebody who spoke out of school who really was wrong? Is it is it an attempt to actually try to undo something we? didn't want said that is in fact true. Who knows? But what a mess. But don't miss this. There's a really serious question about here is uh, what is it, what line are we trying to draw? What what normative uh, framework are we trying to reinforce if we're punishing for this? And and this is where the other part of the article looms so large. My objection to all this sort of talk is it feels like a distraction from actually trying to learn the real lessons learned from solar winds, which are on the defensive side of the house and the need to harden systems. So I loved it to actually read that there is going to also be an executive order to quote, accelerate the hardening of federal government networks. Yes, that is what we're supposed to be talking about here. Now, we're going to do a bunch more defend that you're right. You're absolutely right. But I'm not surprised that that isn't being touted. I've got, I've got a couple of friends that work in things adjacent to this sphere. And uh, I can't remember what article it was years ago that it was before it was pre uh, it was pre Trump era that said the the ratio of investment was 90 10 offense to defense in terms of I think it was around the Snowden release was about the time that this came out 90% of the cyber warfare the US does is offensive and only 10% defensive and you're right in that this is Kicking the Russians in the teeth with cyber warfare is not going to deter them. It's just not, not. from espionage. Not right. from espionage. If we were talking about the grid or implants yeah. on systems where the uh, the espionage value was negligible, but the hold at risk values through the roof, then I mean that's exactly why we earlier read a sequence of articles revealing that uh, out of out of a perception that the Russians had implants on our grids. Uh, we've now got them on theirs. Okay, that all makes sense. It's scary and terrible, but it makes sense. Um, complain. This this is a repeat of the conversations that were had after OPM, after China made a motherload espionage move, hacking the Office of Personnel Management, getting everybody's, you know, uh, security clearance background files, and and Clapper as DNI at one point said publicly, like you know. We, we're not happy about it, but hats off to them. That's a, that's an incredible operation. We're going to try to defeat it next time. And he got blasted for you know people saying like how you know how dare you applaud this? Come on, um, we're all big kids engaging in the big kid game of espionage. I do think there's a serious conversation to be had about whether there is any defensible line drawing that can be done around certain aspects of software update infrastructure. I'm, I'm deeply skeptical. That, China, that Moscow and Beijing, let alone Pyongyang are, and, and Tehran, are going to adhere to any norms that might be uh, developed in that area. But that's at least an academically sensible conversation. Um, but I'm not so sure SolarWinds falls into this scope. Well, watch this place. Um, it would be so much more fun, you guys, to talk about Steve's excellent adventure he had today. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, so it might be fun for tired. you. <laughs> oh, God. What was the issue and how did it go? <laughs> so this is, I mean, this is part of the sort of the the cases I've been working on with a bunch of military lawyers for a few years now about whether it's constitutional to subject retired service members um, 
to court martial jurisdiction for offenses they commit while they are retired, as opposed to during their prior active duty status. Um, and so today was the argument before the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces on that question and the related question of whether even if it's constitutional in the abstract, is it constitutional to distinguish between active duty and reservist retirees who at least while retired are actually pretty indistinguishable. Um, and, and let's just say that um, CAF was not very interested in, 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 what, in what the... Uh, the appellant cross Appley's lawyer had to say. <laughs> who, was, who was that poor fellow? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, so, so, I mean, I guess I, you know, folks can listen to the argument for themselves. I mean, I think, please you know, my, was that? Please listen to the argument and then tweet, uh, Stephen Vladek, your sympathies. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 so I don't, I mean, listen, I, I have all the respect in the world for the judges. I thought, um, uh, Major Curtis Gannon, who argued for the government, I thought did a very, very good job. Um, you know, what this basically boils down to is who should draw the line between when people are subject to the UCMJ and when they are not. And the government's basic argument is Congress should draw that line. And our basic argument is the courts should draw that line because we ought to not be sort of willing to assume that Congress is actually going to make good choices when it comes to subjecting people who have no current ongoing relationship with the military to court martial. Um, and, and that's not necessarily because courts martial are terrible. Um, it's because just as a general proposition, you know, we we prefer civilian adjudication in this country and military courts are the exception. Um, and what I was really just struck by was just how uninterested um, the judges were in the limitlessness of the government's argument that because Congress said so is a good enough reason, even if there's actually no like, because here's the basic problem. And, and Jake can probably talk about this a bit. Like if we talk about like in an emergency, who is the government going to rely upon um, to supplement active duty manpower? You know, the, the sort of hard, you know. Dudes that have just gotten out of the military that aren't retired in the inactive right. reserve. You right. Know. So, so I mean, the, the short version is right. I mean, there's the selected reserve, there's the individual ready reserve, there's the national guard, and then there's the selective service. And the the way that the government tends to think about these scenarios, all four of those would be the pools of manpower they would rely upon before they start recalling like 65, 70, 75 year old. 90-year-old Korean War veterans. Um, and yet no and yet no one in those four groups, nobody, even in the selected reserve, even in the individual ready reserve, none of those folks are subject to the UCMJ when they are not active. Right? It's only the retirees who are at the bottom of the freaking totem pole. And that's purely in an anachronism. It's purely because when Congress wrote the UCMJ, retirees were higher on the list, and Congress has never updated that. And I would have thought that that would have bothered when, like when, at least one of the judges on the court. To give the audience perspective, when was the this originally written for them being higher up on the list? What year roundabouts? So, um, I mean, the, the 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 actual structure here really dates to the 1930s um, when Congress starts messing like, when Congress sort of creates what looks mostly like the modern Naval Reserve. But it's really the UCMJ, the enactment of the UCMJ, the Uniform Code of Military Justice in 1950. And, you know, I mean, Jake, at least in 1950, 
you know, the retired, the, the, there was not yet a robust reserve component, right? Congress, I mean, there were reserves. The Army had a reserve component, the Navy had a reserve component. Congress doesn't really put teeth into the reserve system until 1952. And I also think it's important to, for context, that retirees in the 1950s who were getting out after 20 years didn't have 20 years of running around in a hundred pounds of nonsense to keep right. them alive, body armor and their pack and their weapon. Like the, the truth of it is modern soldiers, there is more wear and tear on their bodies than it was in 1950, just because of the nature of the equipment. Right. Like I was one of them. I'm 33. And there are days when I get out of bed and feel this intense, dull pain in my knee and go, Oh, it's a bone on bone day. Right. And not updating it, still having these retirees in there, where in 1920 they could do 20 years and probably be relatively physically okay. Now, you know, like you said in the warm-up, you know, they go down to do deadlifts or squats and their knees sound like popcorn, right? Right, man. It's just, and, but listen, I mean, and, and here's the real problem. Even if we assume for the sake of argument that the government's actually going to rely on retirees, and by the way, it's been asked like six times to provide data on involuntary recalls of retirees to active duty, and it keeps not providing any data, which, you know, I think says quite a bit about the absence of data. But even if even if there were more recalls, I mean, the reality is you don't need to subject people to the UCMJ while they're inactive in order to be able to uh, ensure their readiness when they're needed. Once again, look at the reserves, right? Reservists are only subject to the UCMJ while they are on active duty or inactive duty training. And so the question is, why are retirees uniquely disadvantaged when it comes to the UCMJ? And what I was just struck by in today's argument is how little any of the judges seem to give a crap about that. Like, it's just like, you know, Congress did this and whatever. So there was a point, I mean, when I got up for my the, the the only time the government got one question about the limitlessness of their argument, and you know they ducked because their argument is limitless, and no one followed up. And so when I got up for my rebuttal, like I I did something I've never done in a rebuttal before. I kind of just like talked, like I I was like, so you know I understand that like you guys are skeptical about upsetting the apple cart here because like this is you know this is the way we this is how we've done it since the time of Henry the Fourth. I didn't actually say that. Um, but, you know, it should it should tell you something that the government's argument relies upon a completely limitless reading of Congress's power. It should tell you something that the government cannot identify more specific ongoing contacts between retirees and the military that justify the assertion of the UCMJ. And, you know, the, the Supreme Court has said we're supposed to be skeptical about extensions of court martial jurisdiction. And so I was struck by the amount of silence that happened when the government lawyer got up. I was sitting here, I was working and I was listening to the thing and listening to the 20 minutes of, you know, your soul being shouted out of your body by the various judges that were up there. And then, you know, the other dude gets up and he's doing his thing. And then probably about five or six minutes into it, I'm like, it's really quiet. Like he's talking and I'm like, wait, hold on. And then even just the tone of it, they all, like I said, they all but served him wine and cheese. Like, sir, would you like a... <laughs> well, because, I mean, because, like, because, you know... Because, out of Congress. But, I mean, the, th- I mean the, thing that bought, the thing that drove me the most nuts about the argument is, like, you know, there's this 19... There's this really important 1987 case called Solorio, mm-hmm. where Chief Justice Rehnquist says, 
active duty personnel can be tried for any offense at any time. Um, and in the process, got rid of something called the service connection test, which had limited jurisdiction over active duty personnel to service related offenses. And Solorio is a huge deal for active duty personnel. But Solorio is only about active duty personnel. And the government's whole argument is, no, it isn't. Solorio covers everything. And because of Solorio, we win. There's a case by Cat. There's a decision by Cat's predecessor, the Court of Military Appeals, sometimes known affectionately as COMA, um, <laughs> three years after Solorio, after Solorio, yeah. where you have a reservist, an inactive reservist who is recalled to participate in a pretrial Article 32 investigation. And like, the Court of Military Appeal spends like five pages talking about how, wow, this could have been a really messy constitutional question if this guy didn't have enough contacts, right? Like, you know, after Solorio, here's a case about a reservist where they say it's not settled by the fact that Congress says, hey, you're subject to the UCMJ. It actually required them to explain why this particular guy had enough contacts. And no one seems to care about that. Like, no one seems to be troubled by the existence of this precedent. That struck me, and they kept going after uh, you about the the pay structure, right? Is that the government could have made a decent argument that the, the difference between retirees and those other categories is that retirees draw a pension and retirees receive medical benefits and a bunch oh, of- Oh, they fought me on that too. They're like, it's not a pension. I'm like, what do you mean it's not a pension? It's based on their years of service. Like- a, a monthly apology check for taking <laughs> What the hell is it? All right, anyway, sorry, Jake, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I, no, no, no. I, I just, I, this is cathartic for me. No, that's fine. That's, fine. The, the, that's the thing that struck me the most is, I was like, okay, yeah, whatever. And, like, and then the government lawyer gets up there and said- nothing of the stuff that I, a third-year law student, would think of is just the basic thing is this is the difference. Retirees get special benefits from the government uh, in exchange for maintaining their readiness and blah, 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 good order and discipline means following the UCMJ. Like that, there's an argument there, even if it's relying on the UCMJ is critical to good order and discipline, even in retirees and whatever, whatever, right? And they didn't do that. They're just like, the, our power is limitless because it says we have limitless power. The end. I mean, I, so I, I have said this before, and, I, and I, I, you know, this is probably a statement I shouldn't really be making on a podcast, but I'll say it anyway because, you know, water under the bridge at this point. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that the government had some, like, non-frivolous arguments in these cases, but that's not the argument, like, I, you know, to, from my perspective, the best the arguments the government has are not the arguments the government has been making. And that's part of why today was so disappointing. Uh, I'll go a step further because I don't want to work for the government. And what are they going to do to me? Blow me up again? Uh, is it seems like in a lot of these things I've listened to, especially after your seminar and getting plugged into this stuff, is they make their arguments they make are the ones that give them the broadest power. Duh, it's the government. And the one that requires, quite frankly, the least work to argue. I mean, that's well, why. I, I, so I, I think that's a little bit unfair. I mean, I think I think I think the virtue of the government's position in this case is it is quite administrable because all that matters is what Congress says. Mm-hmm. But administrability is not like a constitutional argument. Yeah, well, let, me, let me back up now. Let me rephrase that. Because that came off like I was saying that it's laziness and that's not what I intended. Uh, it, it's 
the government the arguments that it seems the government makes are the ones that require only a few sources to cite and it's like these sources and and they it seems to me at least from and of course professor Vlad, correct me because you I, I think you've heard a few more of these than me these cases like uh in the original one the 80s that you were talking about and the others and i forget the name because i've been blown up a few times that's actually how the joke about him challenging me to a fist fight happened is I forgot the name. I was like, ah, I blame the concussions. And he was like, oh, well, you need to remember that stuff or I'll give you another concussion. It's like, ah, what are you saying? You give me the concussion. Anyway, um, it's that they seem to be using, they seem to keep recycling some of these cases and using them almost as tabula rasas. You know, like, it means whatever we want it to mean today, tomorrow, and every day. You know, it means this thing today, it means this thing tomorrow. And it, at least that's the impression that I get from listening to it as just a, like these things that these same cases that keep coming up. Cause there's not a big body of this work, right? There's only a few you can pick from. And it just, I, I don't know. I thought starry decisis was supposed to mean some stuff. And apparently so, it doesn't. I mean, so there's a, there's a remarkable exchange between me and chief judge Stuckey. Um, I think, during I don't know if it was I think it was during the rebuttal it might have been it might have been toward the end of the of the open argument where I where I, where I went back to all these Supreme Court cases were like we interpret court martial jurisdiction narrowly like <laughs> least possible power and 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 Stuckey says to me and and Stuckey says well aren't those cases just from like a different time when the military justice system like wasn't very good yeah, um, like the, the rule on retirees that subjects them to UCMJ. Well, but the other thing I was going to say was, I mean, first of all, um, yes, and there's still good law. But second, and more importantly, like you know, they didn't like disappear. I mean, there are still a whole bunch of limits on you on on military jurisdiction that derive from those cases that are honored. Like it's just retirees just haven't come up because anyway. All right, to make a very long story short. <laughs> I found the argument frustrating insofar as it just seems like the serious, broader implications of the government's position didn't seem to be troubling anybody other than me. And, you know, that it let it, it, it led me to spend a couple hours reflecting upon some of my bigger life decisions on the on the way home. Um, and whether like I really should be spending all of this time um, you know, fighting against these these, Aww. you know, vestigial and anachronistic rules you know, you, um you know but at least for the moment i've got you know even when we lose in calf there we have the appeal in the dc circuit you know um, you, in larrabee you could do right if you really want to test this theory is um what's uh, can't think of a better phrase than the one about wrestling with a pig because pig uh, never ne- never wrestle with a pig yeah, right because because I, you both get dirty and the pig likes it no it's it's not quite the one i'm looking for but it's it's more like uh, I don't I hate to do this, but there's a thing, a biblical thing from my conservative upbringing that's like don't throw your pearls to pigs or something, right? It's like instead of going in with these well reasoned arguments and you know that are you know built on this wonderful career and Yale pedigree and all this, just go in there with like a jewel vape in your mouth and a fifth of Jack. And just make some crazy arguments. See how I'm obviously using hyperbole. But well, what I wouldn't give to see Steve Walker <laughs> with a 
any vape in his mouth and a fifth of anything in hand. Yeah, it just walk. I mean, it's like if you're not going to take this seriously, then neither am I. <laughs> you should have that on call in case, in amidst the argument, you realize it's not going yeah. anywhere, and you yeah. might as well go down in a blaze of glory. Uh, of course, you, that probably might inhibit other clients from retaining you in the future, or or encourage. I don't know. I mean, these days, there's you've got your basic your basic argument and your you know break glass in case of nonsense argument. One day, Steve, you'll be doing your. You'll decide I'm out of this game. This will be my last <laughs> one, and I want you to really kind of go all Al Pacino. You know, no, just, 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 you're out. You're out of order. You're <laughs> out of order. In the middle of the court, and see how long it takes for people to figure out what you're doing. I just, I, there's, I mean, there's. Uh, suffice it to say, there's a broader question here about whether my time litigating these cases is actually accomplishing anything or is just a frolic. Um, hmm. And and you know, our days like today make me make me wonder make me wonder a lot more about that that question than I often do. Well, here's the thing: you cannot know ex ante what. I mean, you can speculate, but you can't know whether you're going to win or lose. You can, and you can only control how you play the game. If you think the game's an important game to play, if you think that you've got a client who's got justice on their side, even if you're going to lose, you're doing something very profoundly important by arguing as best the argument can be made for that cause. Uh, the fact that it might not, that you are definitely not going to win all the time. And, and that's okay. Yeah. Uh, there's an intrinsic value to what you're doing. So I affirm what you're doing, even though as your associate dean, I say, no, 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 come back, stay in the office, never leave your office, write more larvae articles all the yeah. time. From my two cents, as someone who's had to deal with a lot of nonsense and have to figure people out real quick, because you got to know if they're going to crumple in combat or not. Uh, it's, it does seem to me that, I mean, it, you're, you, take, you take a Ferrari into a demolition derby, right? It, it very much seems to me that you are the kind of person who is obviously very intelligent. You're like, no, these are the rules. These are the standards. This is how this works. And the other side is like, yeah, but what if it doesn't? And the judge is like, yeah, that sounds good. And I remember in our seminar that we we did, uh, it was when it was right when the first impeachment happened. Uh, that that was the time period, and there was something that had occurred before then, and I can't remember what it was in the cavalcade of horrors that occurred during that time period. But it, it, I'm pretty sure it has something to do with uh, a secretary, an acting secretary, being in too long. It was one of those, right? And he came in. And it was like that scene from the Big Lebowski. It was like, am I the only one who gives a shit about the rules? You know, it, it, that's the energy that was being given off by that. And I, I got to say, as a student, it is heartening to see someone who still does that, even though you get shouted down by these dudes who are you know, they're, like I said, they're all but rubbing the other dude's feet, you know, when he gets up there to give his argument. And while I do think you might benefit from like, okay, all right, this is how this game is played. It's beyond the success of your client. You set an example for people like me and other people in law school that don't have another perspective on it, especially people that have been 
disenchanted over the last four years seeing nothing seemingly matter. Having somebody that they respect, especially in the law school, because you're kind of an institution, I hear. Uh, <laughs> and still X, Y, Z. And that, and like I said in the warm-up, I still learn stuff from listening to you. Even though they jump down your throat, you handle those judges like you were spinning plates and none of them dropped. Like, yes, let me continue. Let me get to his question, then come back to yours, Chief Justice, and bang, 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 bang. If nothing else, there was value in that. So even if you didn't get a W in that column, you still, you did, a, there's a lot more that you've got to offer from that than just winning the case. Yeah, I mean, I, that's kind of you to say, and, and it's probably the right answer. It's just, you know. Steve, <sighs> I know what you need. You need to talk about Eddie Murphy in Arsenio Hall. Give, and give me, give me a who? restroom. Jake, oh, we will we will tap dance while you are taking care of business. All right, I'll be right back. So, Steve, as I mentioned earlier, I I started watching Coming to America. I was disengaged, but I was unenthused enough to be willing to break it up, and I never got around yet to finishing it. But I also don't mind having spoilers, and I know Jake watched it all. So, you guys, when he comes back, let's definitely break it all down. In the meantime, uh, sports ball roundup. Uh, anything mm. interesting happening out there? So the Cowboys resigned Dak Prescott as a Giants fan. Does that unsettle you? Do you think like, no, that's just the Cowboys ruining themselves over the long term with the huge cap hits they have coming towards them? Uh, I actually don't have any idea how the Giants are doing in cap space, but they don't strike me as having a lot of problems since they don't have that many great players, it seems like. I mean, I you know, the Cowboys never scare me these days. Like they always <laughs> find a way to sort of. It's true. Right. I mean, you know, the Eagles, the Eagles, when they decide to actually compete, scare me. The the Washington football team doesn't really scare me. Like, it's just, you know, the Giants are their own worst enemy. The East is least. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, what about looking ahead to MLB season? I mean, you know, let's go Mets. Um, Going around the horn, what? NBA All-Star game. Big waste of time. Sure seems totally. like um, do you know, Hey, do you know, so, so I don't know if you, do you know, have you, do you know Kirk Goldenberry? No. Um, so Kirk is an Austinite. Um, and we actually used to live like around the corner from him in Clarksville. Um, and Kirk is like now ESPN's like super NBA, like metrics guru. Oh. Um, and he has, he had like the, there's all this conversation now about like what to do about the three point line. So Steph Kirk out or sort of let Kirk's crazy idea is to let each team decide what its three-point line is going to be. Like, have the NBA set, like, a minimum and a maximum distance, but actually let each team... Oh, so the courts vary, like, a little bit. Yes. MLB home to... Yeah, I like that idea. Yes. How about more um, of, like... A, how about hearkening back... Well, I won't, I won't say the movie reference because it's dumb, but how about it kind of moves around a little bit? Uh, you got to kind of pay attention. This thing is... Uh, it's digitized. And you're like, oh, crap, it turned to two right as I shot. Jake, I heard you're just in time for coming to America. Say again. You're just in time for the coming to America. Yeah. All right. Here we go. All right, guys. Lay it on me. Since I haven't finished it, I'm just going to throw myself out How there. How have you not finished it? Because I. It Those was, are your instructions. I know. I know. Homework, Mister Chesney. Why? As, as you guys, but I've got my stuff. 
So all I can say is I, I started live tweeting at about 20 minutes in. And I decided that my my live tweets were going to be a progression of gifts from the original Coming to America. <laughs> nice. um, and I started with the gif without even knowing what was coming. By the way, if you haven't watched it yet, spoilers, uh, spoilers ahead. Um, without even knowing what was coming, I started with the sexual chocolate gif where, <laughs> you know, Randy Jackson points at the yeah. points at the people who are not clapping and then points himself off stage. Yep. Like, you know, this is how I'm feeling about the movie. And of course, guess who shows up two thirds of the way through the movie? Oh, there's a Jackson Randy- Heights own Mr. Randy Jackson. Oh my God! What did he sing? Did he cover uh, a familiar song? He sang "We Are Family," I think, if I if, if memory serves. So, so the whole—I mean, let's just dispense with any notion. There's a plot to this movie. I mean, it's, this it's is a nostalgia trip. It's it's a fun. And so they did this remarkable job of getting everybody, and I mean, like everybody, um, from p- people you didn't even realize, like the guy who plays the saxophone in Sexual Chocolate, like. Everybody. Wow. Back. Got Lisa's ex-boyfriend, Lisa's sister. So okay, there are a couple of exceptions, right? So 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 um the on the American side, right, Eric LaSalle is missing. Um, right. Um you know, I mean it's not it's not all it's not what's weird is it's not like literally everybody. What's that? I said it sounds like they got some pretty good deep cuts. Yeah, well, and of course, Madison Claire, right, who was the queen, passed away, I think, in 1995. Yeah. So couldn't get everybody, everybody. Um, but then there are also a whole bunch of cameos. So Morgan Freeman makes a cameo. Well, that um, uh, Dikembe Mutombo makes a cameo. No. Did you, did you um, shake your finger? Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> yeah, if you're going to have Dikembe Mutombo, I guess. Um, but he, John Legend makes a cameo. Nice. What did, did, tell, does he sing anything? Uh, in the in the closing credits, right after what you thought was the last scene, even even after what you thought was the was the was the post credits um, Eddie Murphy aha scene, uh-huh, yeah. um, John Legend sings uh, "Queen to Be." Oh, <laughs> that's I'm assuming that's got to be pretty good. That yeah, part. The the thing that I found Legend, anything that guy does the most redeeming thing about it was that there was tremendous memeing potential right beyond beyond nostalgia all that it was a movie meant to be memed the extra the um the extra cameos and things that were added in like that like you know oh my god when i had when dikembe mutombo came out i my wife came upstairs right from her office which is downstairs listening to music and all that which i can never get her attention because she thought that I was hurt because I was laughing. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, wait, so this is sounding pretty good, but I can tell maybe it wasn't great overall. What was the most cringy stuff that went on? <laughs> I mean, the, cringiest, the cringiest stuff was when they broke the fourth wall and started talking about like terrible sequels that have no point other than to like get people paid. Um, right? Like crazy. that happened. Um, there was one incredibly like groan-inducing product placement for Crown Royal, um, oh, right? I mean, it's just like, and so you know, listen. Were there points where I chuckled? Yes, but here's the problem, and this actually does this will bring things full circle, right? Um, what I hated about my 40th birthday seminar thing was I hated it. I hated being a spectacle, right? <laughs> this was not a movie. This was a spectacle, and 
and and the and spectacles are fine and spectacles are entertaining but it really to me diminishes the first movie like it's not i i don't expect sequels to be good they usually suck right but like this one in particular was not just a bad sequel it was like it, it was like you know it was depriving the original movie of what made it great yeah i i agree with all the stuff that professor Vlack just said uh Coming to America, the first one is actually the first film I ever saw Eddie Murphy in, right? Oh, came out, came, out, came out in 1998. I was born in 1997. For those of you who went to law school and can't do math, and I, it was the first one I saw when I was a kid. Um, so of course I've, I'm all up in the nostalgia feels when I start watching it, and I'm sitting it. And I'm, again, spoilers. Watching the first thing, like, uh huh, uh huh. Okay, okay. She drugged him. Uh huh. Oh, oh, the inciting incident is a date rape. Oh, the inciting incident is a sexual assault. Yes, there's also that. The entire premise of the film is that this lady date raped Eddie Murphy in the first film and had his kid and then comes to back to like, oh, this is your son. Like, like can you imagine what the, the reverse of that? If it, Eddie Murphy's character had drugged her and had the one night stand and then left. And then she shows up 30 years later. But, but I mean, but this goes back to something Bobby had said. So Bobby, Bobby, when we, when we, when we broke down the trailer, when we did our live analysis of the trailer, Bobby said he had a hard time believing that like, it really could be Eddie Murphy's kid because it's so inconsistent with what we're led to believe about Prince Akeem and his character in yes. the first movie. Left a space for that. So they had to go this horrific pathway. Yes. They could have just gotten him drunk. Like he, they both yeah, got have him drunk. be the agent of the, of the misbehavior. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not making any judgments about like, Oh, if they're both drunk, it's okay. That's not what I mean. Right. But put them in a scenario where it is not clearly one person. I mean, being the, the film, right. The film does affirmative violence to the first movie. And it, like the first rule of a sequel should be do no harm to the original. Tell that to George Lucas. Well, I, listen. I mean, you, and, and my views on those are well are, are are a matter of all are also a matter of public yes. record. So I guess the problem is like it, it's not that I didn't laugh at some moments. Like there's a moment where we meet the nephew of of Randolph and Mortimer oh, Duke. I, I thought that was pretty great, and, and I actually thought that scene, like I actually thought that scene between you know Eddie Murphy's um um you know son, uh, uh, yeah. son out of wedlock and and. You know what's his name? The Saturday Night Live guy, Colin. Not not him. Colin. Well, anyway, Colin um, I thought that scene was actually the funniest standalone scene in the movie, and it was a scene that had absolutely nothing to do with anything about coming to America. And so, like you know, there there are moments of levity. There are moments where you're like, ha ha ha. Um, Wesley Snipes is thoroughly entertaining as General Izzy. Yeah, I um, did see his, his come on scene. That was, that was pretty great. Do you, but, do you feel but, like, there's, like are, we, just, are we in for a series of these? Like is. No. No. You know, I, I was, I was just thinking of a thing like the, any, anything that could have been better than what they did for the inciting incident. Cause I'm still stuck on that. I'm still even beyond all of the, the movie critic stuff of it, which is true. I'm still stuck on the route they chose. Right. Yep. Because here's what I just thought of. Remember in the first one where he's like pretending to be poor and living as a commoner and all that? A flashback scene where 
he goes to a sperm bank and donates to get money. Ah, there you go. Done. I like that. Done. Hollywood, send it to rewrite. But this Dude, is that took but, me, but, that took me but three this, minutes. But this, I mean, this is where. But this is where, like, this is what I mean by doing affirmative violence to the first movie. Like, so one of the things that that's supposed to make us really like Prince Akeem in the first movie is what he values and what he prioritizes mm-hmm. and how you know he's going to push for real like. He values equality. Mm-hmm. And then what does he do when he becomes king or, or when he becomes the crown prince? Like, what does he do after he marries Lisa? He apparently spends 30 years, like, forgetting all that stuff and being yep. a jerk. Yep. 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 Let me ask this. Did, did they reprise in some fashion and call back to the scene at the Knicks game? Where he goes to the bathroom and runs into the guy that knows him. There was no, there was no, uh, there was no. I will cherish this moment for the rest of my life. Who is that? Oh, it's just a man I met in the bathroom. There was uh, that. That was not reprised. The term for um, the trope that was used. That's is a shame perfect. because that may have been the funniest part of that entire movie. Term well, guys, we're closing in on the the mm-hmm. one oh, hour. Jake, minute Jake, mark. what are you saying? It's character in name only. When a character oh. returns to a sequel or second season, and they're completely different. Ah, character in name only. Yep, that's a useful concept, and it sounds like what was going down here. Yeah. So, well, so, 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 so my overall review of Coming to America, it was it was good, good and terrible. Terrible. <laughs> Not Charles Barkley terrible. Eddie Murphy terrible. <laughs> Not unlike our typical podcast, but this week was different because we had Jake Bishop with us. Jake, Indeed. really <laughs> awesome having you on the show. Um, <laughs> Great this job! Might be like one of our this might be our one of our longest episodes ever, and it's all Jake's fault. I know, right? <laughs> awesome. All right. All right well, well, so um, Jake, can people find you online, or are you well hidden? I am well hidden because I don't want people knowing where I work. Excellent. Smart decision. Yet another. Is your name decision. even Jake Bishop? Uh, n- not on social media. <laughs> all right well so so if you want to find jake just you know uh i don't know uh send carrier pigeons bobby is at bobby chesney i'm at steve underscore vladic we are at nsl podcast Whew. next week is spring break so there's a pretty good chance we will not be recording next week i'll say that um, i'll say that <laughs> you'll have to do an emergency one i mean you know i said pretty good you know i i have i have faith in i have faith in my man joe um but until then everybody uh thank you jake um, we really appreciate your support of the podcast and Texas Law Fellowships. Um, and stay safe out there, all of you people. Bye. Adios. <laughs>